Coming up on Philosophy Talk... You know how many people one get in this country? Immigration and multiculturalism. Vietnamese, Korean, Salvadorians, those Iranians, Mexicans, Bolivians, your Greeks, your Turkish... Have mercy. So many people... I have mercy, but I can't carry the work home. I just like a TV set. Turn me on at eight, turn me on at four. Should ethnic or cultural identity ever be considered in a country's immigration policy? Not in a multicultural society. So we should welcome immigrants who reject the society's values? Let's practice our English. Okay. Okay? Okay. Let us practice. Kiss me beautiful. Beautiful? Beautiful. I love you. Doesn't the first world's contribution to climate change give it an obligation to welcome climate refugees? Our guest is Sarah Song from the UC Berkeley Law School. Immigration and Multiculturalism, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Should immigrants assimilate into their new society? Or should society adapt to make room for different cultures? Aren't there some foreign customs locals should never accept? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Josh Landy. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today we're thinking about immigration and multiculturalism. Ah, multiculturalism. Josh, such a, such a buzzword these days. It's the idea that each culture within a society should maintain its own identity rather than a to the dominant one, sort of like, uh, I don't know, a salad bar rather than the uh, good old-fashioned melting pot. Yeah, that's right. And the salad is delicious. I mean, I, I, you know, I benefit from my, myself. I'm, I'm an immigrant here, but, you know, I get to hang on to some of my Britishness. I get to uh, watch real football, not that fake kind that you guys <laughs> enjoy. I, I get to drink single malt scotch and my au gray tea. Josh, Josh. I love you, dude, but you're kidding yourself. You're the most assimilated Brit I know. I mean, your accent, it's almost totally American, dude. You you talk loudly in restaurants even when you're abroad, just like an ugly American. I bet, I bet. Come on, tell me the truth. When you go back to England, people look at you and say, Josh, you've become so Yankified. What happened? Guilty as charged. Well, don't, don't feel bad. That's a good thing. I mean, think about it. People from all over the world come here. We They join together in a common national vision, man, a, a shared project. We set aside our se what separates us, and we focused on what brings us together. That, that's what got us to the moon, Josh, that can-do American spirit. Yeah, but, you know, assimilation also comes at a real cost, Ken. You know, I, I mean, think about a Muslim person who moves to a majority Christian country. That person could assimilate, but they'd have to give up their religion. And that seems like a pretty high price to pay. I'm not telling people they have to give up their religion. They can live out their separate identities in the private sphere. That's fine with me. But when it comes to the public sphere, where we all get together to deliberate about how to solve our collective problems, well, that's precisely when we need to focus on our shared humanity and check our identities at the door of the public square, dude. I don't agree. Look, I, I think it's beneficial, not just for individuals, but also for society, if you have people living out their differences in public. I mean, just think about food. Are you telling me you want people to cook their delicious curries and pastas and enchiladas 
in secret and not let anybody else have a taste? Yeah, Josh, that, look, look, that's a terrible metaphor. I'm not talking about food. Food never did anyone any harm. That's not the issue. I guess you never have British food. And I don't intend to. <laughs> The problem with multiculturalism is that some cultures, you know, they include elements of some pretty ugly things. Misogyny, homophobia, racism. Wouldn't you rather people shed those attitudes when they come to America? Oh, right. Like people born in America never have any of those attitudes? Okay, come on. I grant you. Americans, our fellow Americans can be, you know, a little bigoted at times, a little racist, a little xenophobic, but all that, that doesn't deserve a place in our liberal democracy. Look, whether or not we always live up to them, our norms and institutions, they're all about fairness. They're about equal treatment. So what do you propose instead, Mr. Multiculturalism, when people come in with very different norms, very different laws and customs? What do you propose? Laws? You're talking about Sharia law or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, are you saying we should let immigrants who endorse Sharia, for example, just to take an instance, I mean, maybe rewrite the civil code or live by their own laws in their own little communities? Is that what you're proposing? I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about people rewriting the law. I'm just saying let them do their own thing. I mean, it's just like John Stuart Mill said, as long as what they're doing isn't harming anybody, we should accept it. We should even welcome it. No, no, but it is doing harm. It's undermining national solidarity. You can't have solidarity if every little sub-community has its own practices, its own norms, its own language. You just can't, Josh. Mais non, monsieur. Tout le monde devrait parler oh. français. Wait, 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 wait. That was French, right? Uh-huh. What are you telling me? Is suddenly you're okay with everyone speaking the same language? What, as long as it's French? Oui, pourquoi pas? <laughs> I, I, you're kidding. You're, you're, you're kidding. You're like you're like those French Canadians who want to outlaw English. Would that really be so horrible? I know you're not serious. At least I hope not. <laughs> because, but on that note, we sent a roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to find out how Quebec has tried to preserve its identity as a French-speaking region, often at the expense of its own multicultural heritage. She files this report. As a young child, the Czech language was all Julie Sedevi knew. Then her family moved from what was then Czechoslovakia through Austria, Italy, and finally East Montreal. She learned French from kids in the neighborhood, but started school in English. It was implicitly clear to me, even as a child, that English was the most prestigious language to speak, that it was the language in which things got done, the language um, of serious people, the language of education. This was in the 1970s, when almost all immigrants in Quebec chose to have their kids educated in English, like Sedevi's parents did. But the French speakers of Quebec felt their culture and language threatened by the pull of English in multicultural Canada. So Quebec officials took action. Quebec put in place a set of language laws that would prohibit immigrants like my family from educating their children in English. Uh, After a certain time, they were only allowed to send their kids to school in French. The government's language laws also required all business signs and brochures to be in French, even wine lists and menus. These rules were enforced by Quebec's language enforcement agency, nicknamed the Language Police. This enraged some of Quebec's minority Anglophones and frustrated Sedevi. Even as a kid, she saw how English could be used like a currency to win acceptance and approval. Certain extended family members had their choice of language curtailed by those language laws. I think it sort of shifted the assumptions about which language was most useful and most valuable. Now all of a sudden you became very handicapped. If you didn't speak French, it became harder to find a job. But now she understands why the government did this. 
Sedevi is a writer and a cognitive scientist who specializes in languages. When her dad died, she realized how much she missed her native Czech tongue. I'm now more aware of the fact that a dominant language like English really has the potential to steamroll over um, minority languages unless something is done to bolster the status of, of some of those weaker or smaller languages. The language laws did help preserve French in Quebec, and younger generations aren't as concerned that the language will die out now. I've discovered a changed landscape. Dan Bilefsky also grew up in Montreal. He lived abroad for 28 years, but recently returned as a New York Times correspondent. The cultural wars of the past have largely dissipated, and the younger generation is much more interested in being the next Quebecois Bill Gates than in revisiting the atavistic linguistic arguments of the past. <laughs> in contemporary Quebec hip-hop, you hear a lot of language mixing. Take the francophone rap group Dead Obeats. Or the comedian Sugar Sam, who jokes in both French and English. All right, welcome to the Illegal English Edition. In his routines, he often jokes about language. You have a French accent, no? You're practicing your French accent? While speaking English? You don't need to do that, man. But you can still find some language purists in Quebec. Sugar Sam's critics have called him a francophobe federalist bully and a traitor. Quebec legislators recently told shopkeepers to stop saying, Bonjour, hi. An Italian restaurant in Montreal faced the ire of the language police for saying Polpette instead of Boulette de viande and Pasta instead of Pat. The language laws in Quebec are always bubbling uh, underneath the surface, and every so often they wield their heads. Some efforts to preserve secular French culture take more extreme forms. A little over a decade ago, the rural Quebec village of Arrowville introduced a code of conduct for immigrants. The code explained that people in the village enjoyed dancing, music, and Christmas trees. But some rules could also be seen as extremely Islamophobic, like warnings against stoning women in public and burning them alive. Bolevsky visited that village for a New York Times piece last year. Really, many people who I spoke to were quite unrepentant about this code of conduct, thought it was a good thing, and thought that immigrants who come to Quebec really do need to assimilate and integrate, integrate to local norms. When Bolevsky thinks of lingering cultural battles over Quebec's identity, he's reminded of two sculptures near the old port of Montreal. One is of a French woman wearing a Chanel suit and clasping a poodle. On the other side, an English man holds a pug. Their dogs, the poodle and the pug, are staring longingly at each other. Meanwhile, the two statues, one French, one English, look away. Bolevsky says these statues symbolize Quebec's two enduring solitudes. For what it's worth, these statues are also known as the two snobs. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.